Lifestylist, Episode 5, featuring Emily Fletcher. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Today's episode is brought to you by livinglibations.com. Living Libations is an exquisite line of botanical beauty products, immune-enhancing formulas, and potent dental serums for those seeking the purest of health and wellness products on the planet. They are absolutely my number one personal go-to when it comes to dental hygiene products, skincare products, and essential oils. And I have to say, their Poetic Pits deodorant is probably the only natural deodorant on the planet that not only works, but actually smells really good. It works with your body's own biochemistry, and each person that wears it kind of has their own scent. I like Palo Santo, personally. I use it every day. I'm like freaking out because I'm about to take a trip to New York and I just ran out of it, and I don't think I can get a shipment in time. That's how much I need that stuff. So Living Libations is an amazing company. I'm always recommending them to all of my clients and friends. Totally legit products. Here's the good news, though. You're going to get a little discount code. So if you go to livinglibations.com, and use the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout, you will save 10% off your order. So that's livinglibations.com. Use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 10%. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow for Episode 6, The Great Sunshine Swindle, featuring Nadine Artemis. We are back together again, me and you, on another episode of the LIFESTYLIST podcast. I'm Luke Story from LukeStory.com, here to bring you another amazing episode with today's guest, Emily Fletcher. I met Emily a while ago in New York City, where she has an amazing center called Ziva Meditation, and my meditation teacher of Vedic meditation, the type of meditation that I practice, Jeff Kober was there doing a talk. And I just love the energy that Emily brought to the space. Really great crowd, great crew of people, really good meditation click up in that property. So I immediately connected with her and then, of course, hooked up with her out in L.A., which you'll hear about on the show, and was lucky enough to have her in the studio today, one-on-one, to have a chat with me about all things meditation. So in this interview, we discuss why meditation should be easy, the origins of Vedic meditation, where spirituality and money mix, why you need a mantra, how meditation reduces stress and actually treats PTSD. So we cover some stuff in a very in-depth way here. And this, of course, is a subject, if you know me or if you've listened to the show before, that I'm really, really passionate about and has been a part of my life for many, many years. And I really dig how Emily's kind of bringing this to the mainstream and making it very accessible through her great online program and traveling all over the country, giving all sorts of talks and really bringing her meditation message to not only the masses, but to corporate America, which is a really good sign for this country and for the world if we could bring a little more consciousness into the world of commerce. So I really look forward to sharing this episode with you today. Now, before we get too blissed out, too zenned out, in this meditation-based podcast, I want to remind you, my listener, to download your free episode upgrade. The episode upgrade is, of course, all of the show notes and links and everything that Emily and I discuss in the interview. So it's a really beautiful, well-put-together, well-designed, four-page PDF document just for you, just for free. All right, here's how you get it. You want to text the word LIFESTYLIST5 to the number 44222. Again, check this out. Text LIFESTYLIST and the number 5 to this phone number, 44222. Or you can also get it in your browser by going to lukestory.com forward slash LIFESTYLIST5. And it's going to be instantly downloadable for you for free. What a hookup. It's pretty awesome. I also want to remind you to absolutely subscribe to this show. I'm cranking out these amazing episodes with really, really crucial guests about all things regarding building the ultimate lifestyle. So health, spirituality, performance, 
metaphysics, you name it, I'm going there, and I don't want you to miss an episode. After you've subscribed, of course, it's always wonderful if you can go into iTunes and leave us a rating and review. And if you don't like iTunes, you know, I'm on Spotify now too, so you can listen to it there. It's kind of cool. I like to jump back and forth from music to podcasts on Spotify now, which is a great resource. So thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing this great interview with you. Today's guest is Emily Fletcher, founder of Ziva Meditation and one of the world's leading experts on the subject. She's been invited to teach at companies like Google, Harvard Business School, and Viacom. She began her 10 years of training in meditation in Rishikesh, India, under world-renowned instructors. She was inspired to share this practice with others after experiencing the profound physical and mental benefits it provided her during her career on Broadway, which included roles in Chicago, The Producers, A Chorus Line, and many others. With her high-performance background and her eight years of meditation experience, Emily is perfectly suited to teach busy people how to incorporate this simple and hugely effective practice into their lives. She was a speaker at GATE, the Global Alliance for Transformational Entertainment, with Jim Carrey and Eckhart Tolle. Emily was also included in Mind Body Green's 100 Women to Watch in Wellness list and has appeared on HuffPost Live. She's also an impressive entrepreneur, funny as hell, and just all-around badass woman. I'm grateful to call her a friend and to have the pleasure of sitting down for an up-close and personal chat with her about her life and her mission. Okay, so here we are with Miss Emily Fletcher, one of my favorite meditation teachers. Welcome to the show, Emily. What a joy to be here. Thanks for having me. Super, super exciting. So I heard Emily's talk last night and uh, here in LA, right on the heels of the Bulletproof Conference. And this was an intimate setting. I don't know, maybe 25 people? 45. Was there that many? <laughs> okay. Packed in there. Okay. I so guess it, hot. It was a small room. You were on the front row, so you couldn't see everyone, but people just kept streaming in and streaming in. And then it turned into beaker meditation. Right. <laughs> it, the AC was broken. It kind of did. And admittedly, I was almost falling asleep. And I was like, don't be rude, Luke, because I was right in front of you by about two feet. I was very interested, but it was hot. It was hot. But that was, a, that was a great introduction to your style of meditation and just who you are. So I'm super excited to have you here and just get to pick your brain on your life and what you do to help people with this practice. So normally on a show, people would say, I want to hear your whole bio and your history and how you came into this. And I kind of already know that. So I'd like to just kind of dig in and start talking about meditation, its benefits. And I'd also like to get into maybe later in the show, some of the other practices that you've incorporated into your life in a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. So give me like the elevator pitch on how you ended up coming to meditation. I was on Broadway for 10 years and I thought that my whole life was going to be sunshine and roses once I got there, because it was my dream since I was eight. And then when I got there, it was the saddest I'd ever been. But I just thought, well, my happiness must lie in the next show and the next show and the next show. And I did that for 10 years. And then I found meditation. I was doing a chorus line, understudying three of the lead roles, finding it very stressful, going gray, getting sick, having insomnia. Took this four-day Vedic meditation course, changed my life, cured my insomnia on the first day, stopped getting sick, stopped getting injured, stopped going gray, actually. And then it transformed my life so dramatically that I felt inspired to be able to share it with others. So I left Broadway, went to India, began uh, what became a three-year training process to teach this. And then I opened up Ziva in 2011. So we have a center in New York City. I teach in person in LA. And we started the world's first online meditation training called Ziva Mind, which I'm really proud of because not everyone in the world has access to a face-to-face teacher. And it's been the most creative, rewarding thing I've ever done. That's so great. Yeah, I came to the space in New York. That's where we met through our uh, mutual friend, Jeff Kober, who I learned this tradition of meditation from, and he was speaking there. And I just thought it was so unique, especially in the middle of Manhattan. You're what, in Midtown, right? Yeah, I mean, you're in Midtown Manhattan. You walk in off the street. And New York, to me, having lived most of my life in L.A., is still incredibly overwhelming, So to come in off the street and enter a meditation studio or a yoga studio or anything like that 
it's just so much more precious, you know? So I came in, it was like, God, all these people really are here with the sole purpose of listening to a couple of people chat about meditation and then to partake in a group meditation. And that particular one that night, I guess I really needed it too, because <laughs> that city just hammers me so bad when I land there. But uh, it was a really deep meditation. Mm. I think the space that you're holding there is really powerful. Yeah, so, we've had over yeah. 1,300 people learn to meditate in there. And you're right, it's like this little oasis of bliss inside of a very high demand, sometimes chaotic city. Yeah, for sure. And it's also interesting. I remember, I don't remember when I first heard about what you did, but the word Vedic meditation caught my ear whenever that was. I came across your site or something like that. And uh, being the tradition that I've been on for three years or so now, you know, it caught my attention. And at first I thought, oh, that's kind of weird that someone's making a whole business out of meditation. You know, I have these sort of preconceived ideas that which I don't believe in, they're just there and it's something I'm working through that somehow money and spirituality don't mix, but then I'll go buy Eckhart Tolle's book and I'm really glad that he's selling it to me. You know, it's this it's this weird thing. And then uh, having gone to your studio and just ha- had a different experience, I thought, God, what an amazing gift to be able to actually build a business and create commerce out of something that the world really needs. It's actually the best thing ever. And after that, I'm going, wow, I wish there were a million meditation businesses all over the world. Thank you for saying that. And it really stops a lot of people from learning the fact that I charge money for the course. It's a big turnoff for some people. And I think that that comes from the fact that most styles of meditation, that most people practice are derivative of styles that were made for monks. And so it's more of a monastic tradition, meaning that you're going to house a monk, you're going to feed him, and then maybe he'll teach you some lessons. And they're sort of vagabonds that are traveling the world with their knapsack. They don't have kids. They don't have homes. They're not householders. Whereas this style of meditation that I teach, it's not made for monks. It's made for people who live in society, people with busy minds and busy lives, what we call householders in India. So you want to have a job and kids, and maybe you need to send those kids to college, or maybe you want to have a commercial real estate in Manhattan so people can come there and meditate. You know, this word business and commerce, they get such a bad rap in the spiritual community, but a business is simply providing a service, right? You're providing a service. And in my personal opinion, teaching people to meditate is one of the most valuable and important services anyone can be providing right now. And, and since the beginning of time, even in, even in the monastic traditions, there's always something called Guru Dakshana. Guru Dakshana is basically an exchange of energy. Is the student willing to apprentice the teacher? Or are they willing to give their time and their attention? Are they demonstrating something that we call worthy inquiry, which basically means that they actually want to learn? And that's part of what that course fee is there for. Yes, it absolutely pays the rent and it pays the salary and it pays my staff and the graphic designers and the you know web ads and all the stuff that it takes to run a virtual ashram these days. But that course fee is also there for the student so that they have some skin in the game and so that they're invested in the practice. Because to be honest, this style that I teach is so intense and so powerful that oftentimes in the first few days and weeks, people can have some pretty intense like detoxing. I call it unstressing. And that can look like some tears, some sadness, some rage, sometimes even vomiting. And if people aren't, if they don't have some skin in the game, it's pretty easy to jump ship. And that's really my job is to, is to, usher people through that in an elegant way and just, you know, make fart jokes and be like, you're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. My meditation teacher hasn't busted out the fart jokes yet. I like that. I I relate to those. So yeah, I can say from my standpoint of being, you know, a client and a practitioner, when I learned from Jeff Kober, there was a little apprehension on my part, because I think whenever you're spending money for something intangible, you know, it's a little bit, you're not sure if you're going to get the value and get what you paid yeah, it's for. It's a snake oil salesman or, you know, yeah. How do you quantify meditation? Exactly. And then once I learned and it just became immediately, as I was telling you earlier, immediately integrated into my life, it was just this automatic download and it just started happening and it just became part of my day-to-day experience. I mean, the idea of money became so irrelevant it would have been it didn't matter how much it cost i I never once have gone back and thought well you know i wish i had that money back now it's like (laughs) thank god i learned a meditation you know my experience was 15 years prior to that i'm meditating on a daily basis and oftentimes really struggling with it because 
I was self-taught or was using guided meditations or meditations in yoga or just different things that I picked up along the way, but I didn't really have any proper training. So it was actually kind of frustrating at times due to my lack of knowledge about what meditation actually is. But having paid for the training, like you said, having skin in the game, I'm like, I paid this money, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, my own little self-taught meditations, which were great and I'm sure I benefited from, if I skipped it or just dropped to practice because I bought a $12 book and read about it or an audio book or something, it, there was really no investment in that. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, it's it was twofold. One, the practices that are... Uh, available on YouTube or a book or something, they're nowhere near as powerful as what you learn face-to-face from a teacher who's part of a lineage. And also, as to your point, it doesn't matter what the tool is if you don't pick it up and use it. And so if you haven't made some investment, some commitment in it, oftentimes meditation is a really easy thing to skip. And what I often tell people is, and I try to get really honest with myself about this, like if, if I were face-to-face with a billionaire and they were to say to me, all right, Emily, I'm going to I'm gonna test you on this. Like I, I can write a check right now for any amount of money. Like let's call it $300 million. I can write you a check right now for $300 million. I'd be one of the richest people, at least in the United States. But the conditions of this check are that you can never meditate again. There's no way that I would take that check. That's great. And I try to think of an amount of like maybe a billion. If someone wrote me a check for a billion dollars, would I give it up then? And the answer is no, because my insomnia would come back that night. And then I would just be a very tired and sad billionaire. I mean, we all, of course, suffer from that illusion that money is the thing that's going to bring us happiness and all the things that money is attached to or we think it is. But this actually does bring you happiness. Yeah, you know? you're it's actually like, flooding your brain with dopamine and serotonin. Yeah. So let's then, that's a good segue then. Let's go into, now that we just talked about your business and just, you know, how that works and the fact that I just think it's the coolest thing ever. And uh, it's also one of those things, actually, when I heard about it, I was like, God, why didn't I think of that? Like a meaningful way to contribute to society and actually have a great viable business, especially with the online component, which is a great business model for both parties. You know, like you said, people remotely have access to something they couldn't find anywhere else. And you also have a scalable business, which is pretty damn cool. So let's talk about the actual mechanics of meditation. So I, I told you about my experience, right? Where I'm sort of self-taught or I'm, I'm reading something like Emmett Fox that we were just discussing and I'm contemplating that and, and I would maybe read and then pray a little and then meditate for a few minutes and I just developed my own amalgam of spiritual practices that I would usually do in the morning and still do all of those things as well. You know, when time allows. It's, it's like with this meditation, it's 20 minutes, so... When I started doing that, some of those other things started to become minimized to a degree because I just don't have four hours to sit around and monk out in the morning. <laughs> but in, in that meditation, as I said, at times it was somewhat frustrating or just, if not frustrating, ambiguous because my ideas on meditation were this. Meditating is clearing your mind and making the thoughts stop. So maybe I go, you know, three seconds with no mind and then it starts again and i feel like oh now i'm not meditating so i go back into it and try to quote unquote i'm doing air quotes here people quote unquote meditate and then the thoughts come back and i go oh i just lost the meditation whereas in this practice any meditation you do within that 20 minutes following these guidelines and using your mantra is an effective and successful meditation so talk to me about what this actually looks like in terms of what makes it work and and why trying to stop your mind is not possible. Yeah, so this is really important and it is the number one misconception about meditation. And, And I actually find that it keeps people from meditating almost every day. Someone will say to me, Emily, I get that it's good for you. I know that all this neuroscience is coming out and I get that, you know, some people it works for them, but I've tried to meditate and I can't stop my mind from thinking my mind is crazy. My stress is special. Right. And, and what they're judging themselves by is how effective they are at giving their mind a command to stop thinking. But here is the very important news is that the mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. 
So judging yourself at how good you are to give your mind a command to stop is as effective as judging yourself at how good you are at giving your heart a command to stop beating. It doesn't work. It's impossible. And if you're sitting down and trying that as your style of meditation, you're constantly going to feel like you're failing and then you're going to quit after, you know, maybe one session, maybe a week if you're really stubborn. Um, and then, and then what you've done is that you've robbed yourself of a lifetime of bliss and fulfillment and more energy and more creativity. And this is why I'm on such a bit of a, a mission about this one thing, because I mean, I can't tell you how many times a day I hear that. So, so what we do in this style of meditation, and first I should say that there are thousands of different styles of meditation. Most of them fall under one of two umbrellas. Um, mindfulness, which is a directed focus style of meditation, which is derivative of styles that were created for monks. And then there's what I teach that was actually made for people with busy minds and busy lives, people that live in society. And so if you're a monk, basically you're meditating all day, right? That is your contribution to society. You're washing dishes. It's a meditation. You're walking in the garden. It's a meditation. Um, basically I would call mindfulness the art of bringing your awareness into the present moment, which is a really beautiful and powerful practice, but it's more of a waking state practice. Whereas what I teach, which is the foundation of what we teach at Ziva is called Vedic meditation. And again, made for people who live in society, but what we're doing is that we're inducing a verifiable fourth state of consciousness. So different than waking, different than sleeping, and different than dreaming. And it's very restful for the body, somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. And it's that deep rest that we give the body, that's what induces the healing. And one of the things that the body heals itself from is stress. So then on the other side of this 20-minute meditation, as you mentioned, you meditate for 20 minutes, but it's even more restful than sleep. So it's about the equivalent of like an hour and a half nap. And then on the other side of that 20 minutes, not only are you more awake, but you also have less stress in your body. And this is why it really increases your performance capabilities. And this is why it was designed for people who want to deliver the most amazing version of themselves to their families, to their jobs. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> I've also had the experience of meditating in this tradition and <laughs> totally losing track of time right i mean it's almost like psychedelic at times right so i'm totally i'm i'm going for the 20 minutes i lose track of all time mm -hmm. and think that i'm asleep mm -hmm. but then realize as it ends that i wasn't in fact asleep that i was somewhere else you know and this is something that i often sort of forced by going into sensory deprivation tanks it's a similar kind of thing but you go for an hour and you really do disconnect from your body but you you don't need a tank to do it with this practice the mantra does that the mantra takes you out of this conscious state at times and those are the ones i really like so tell us how the mantra what the mantra is and how it plays in here to, to take us to that place where the stress is leaving the body and, and that we are actually relaxing. And that, in my experience at times, my mind really does go quiet in, in the space that I'm speaking of now. I mean, it's like air, just whoosh, which is what I was always trying to find and so frustrated and not be able to achieve. While there are other times, you know, it takes me probably 10 minutes to even catch that mantra. It's like my mind is going and going because I'm overstimulated or stressed. And then maybe in the last five minutes, I finally catch the mantra gently, right? And then, and then I go into that quiet space. And it was a, um, a neat experience to learn in this tradition that even if you have one with a really busy mind, it was still a great meditation because it served the purpose of relieving that stress. So, so back to that mantra, what's, what, what is it and what's it doing? Yeah. So an important point that I want to highlight that you just made is that it is possible for the mind to move beyond the realm of thinking into the realm of being. That is absolutely possible. The distinction that I want to make here is that it is impossible to give the mind a command to stop thinking. Those are two very different things. In Vedic meditation, this transcendence or this fourth state of consciousness, it's sort of, you're inducing it, but through no effort of your own. It is the mantra that helps to induce that restful state of consciousness. And that is different than sitting down and being like, okay, brain, stop thinking. Oh, I'm hungry. Oh, wait, that's a thought. Oh, wait, now that's a thought about a thought. 
Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking about how I'm thinking about how I'm thinking. Oh my God, I'm the worst meditator in the world and I quit. Yeah. And I hate meditation. Yeah, exactly. The next thought is like, I suck at this. I'm not yeah. even going to do this. I'm yeah. too stressed. My mind is too crazy. Yeah. So this is the importance of having a teacher and, and finding someone that A, has been through this process themselves and knows how to, to teach and also having the right key for the right car, right? So the mantras really are the keys that operate the car of Vedic meditation. And so a mantra is not at least in our tradition, it's not like, I'm a strong, angry woman, or like, I want a million dollars. Those aren't mantras, those are slogans. Mantra is actually a Sanskrit word. Man means mind, and trap means vehicle. So a mantra is a mind vehicle, custom designed to take you from these active layers of left brain thinking down into more subtle layers of right brain being. And that thing that you were talking about, where it's just like air, or you seem to lose track of time, right? So now, now why do the mantras work in that way? The mantras that we use, they're meaningless primordial sounds, and it actually is the sound quality of the mantra that de-excites the body. Now, this sounds totally nutso, and I used to make jokes about how I didn't understand why the mantras worked in the way that they did, but now I do actually understand it. There's a whole, like, I don't know if it's new, but it's new to me, a branch of science called semantics, and it's the science of sound. And there's some really cool YouTube videos on this, but you can basically have like a sheet of metal and people will pour a blob of water onto the metal and they'll play it with a violin bow at a certain frequency, at a certain tone. And that blob of water will take all these beautiful sacred geometric shapes. And then they'll play it at a different frequency, a different tone, and the water changes to a different sacred geometrical shape. What is the search term for that? Because one of my Kundalini yoga teachers, Guru Singh, talked about that one day. And then I forgot to ask him, like, how do do I find that? Because I want that. So what you could search is semantics, C-Y-M-A-N-T-I-C-S, semantics. And to be totally honest, I'm not sure if there's an N in there. It might be semantics or it might be semantics. You're talking to the most water obsessed human being. I mean, like I should just have a house that's underwater. I'm really into the magic of, of water. So I get that. Speaking of which, did you ever see the the work of Dr. Emoto, Japanese doctor? Mm, I read that book you like did? 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of along those lines, right? Yeah. The hidden messages in water. Exactly. So So yeah, so in this style, you're given a mantra um, and you're given it face-to-face individually from a teacher and the mantras are, they're personalized for you and they are sort of like the key that operates the car of Vedic meditation. Now, the thing about that is you put the right key in the right car and you learn how to turn it on and then the car kind of just goes. You know, you got to know when to stop it. You got to know when to put on the brakes and how to put it in park. But largely, if you're driving a car, it's kind of doing the work for you. And that's really what these mantras do. They are the thing that allows this to be so effortless and so enjoyable. And what I like to say at Ziva is that what we do is the uh, the lazy man's meditation. Because <laughs> it's not hard. It's not about focusing. It's not about chanting. It's not about hours and hours of yoga. It's not about stopping drinking Jack Daniels or stopping having sex. Like you can do all that stuff. And then you just insert the meditation in to your life so that you perform at the top of your game. Awesome. That's great. And so I think when a lot of people picture a mantra, they might uh, think of something that is a series of words or sounds that they hear in a yoga class, for example. Sometimes I practice and there'll be a mantra that's a whole page long and they hand it to you and try to get you to go along with this you know, chant this Sanskrit Sanskrit nonsense and you don't understand. Explain what um, a Vedic meditation mantra would sound like and, and why you don't share that mantra with other people in this tradition. So, yeah, a lot of people are concerned. They're like, if I get my mantra, what if I forget it? Is it really long? Is it, you know, 30 seconds long? And they're not, they're not long. Um, but I liken them to, okay, so there's two reasons. And this freaks some people out too. They're like, why can't I tell people my mantra? I think there's like a joke about it in like a Woody Allen movie in the 70s or something. Um, and it freaks people out. And it's really not meant to be freaky or weird or like fraternity-like or anything. There's two really simple reasons that the mantras are meant to be kept private. Uh, one is that most thoughts move from the unmanifest to the manifest. Like most thoughts go from nothingness into somethingness. Like you're sitting on the couch watching Game of Thrones and you get a sensation. You're like, what is that? Like, I'm hungry. 
I mean, I think I want an apple and then you go up and you get the apple and you eat it. So it goes from nothingness into somethingness. Most ideas, most thoughts bubble up that direction. These mantras actually move the other direction. They go from the manifest into the unmanifest. They're custom designed mind vehicles to take you from your left brain down into your right brain realm of being. And so you want to keep them inside. It's very much like you plant a little seed inside and you want to keep that seed underground so that it can grow the root, so that it can grow the most beautiful flower. What you don't do with a seed is plant it and then the next day, go and dig it up to see how it's doing. Third day, how's it going, seed? Fourth day, digging it up. And after a week, you're like, oh, stupid seed, didn't even grow anything. It's like, well, it's not the seed's fault. It's that you keep digging it up. So if you're chanting these mantras or saying them out loud, then you're actually um, reducing the efficacy of them because they're meant to bury themselves. They're actually little forgetting devices, which sounds nutso, I know. Um, and then the second reason is quite simply that this practice, as I mentioned and this was news to me. When I first started learning about this, I thought, well, whatever monks must be doing, it must be way more powerful, right? Because they're monks. They must be like vibrating or levitating or something. But it's actually the other way around. If you have less time in your day with which to meditate, you want to really do something that's very powerful. And this practice, while it's very simple... And why I like to call it the lazy man's meditation, it's also very powerful. It's, it's no joke. I mean, I've, I've seen now over 1,300 people go through it, and I see the intensity of the detoxing process that happens in their body, and it's not to be trifled with, right? Like, it, it really takes some preparation, and it takes some guidance, and it takes some encouragement and some rest to move through that process elegantly in a way that isn't... Um, mm, Dangerous is too strong of a word, but uh, rough. And yeah. yeah. And so that's the, really the other reason is that you don't just want to go out handing mantras to people on the street. It's like you don't want to give keys to $100,000 Teslas to 15-year-old boys who, don't, who haven't yet taken driver's ed. You know what I mean? Once they're in their 30s and they know how to drive, like, great, drive away, have fun. But you're not going to give a 15-year-old boy a $100,000 sports car because he doesn't know how to drive it yet. And that's kind of why, why the mantras are meant to be kept for you, both for the efficacy for your own practice and so that people don't wrap their meditation practice around a tree. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's funny. I've had friends try and talk me into it. Just tell me, man. Just tell me. What is it? What is it? And I'm like, I'm not telling. I've never told anyone, you know, and it's just I go, it's just a sound. It's like, imagine, uh, say, you know, the word or sound ohm. And imagine that you're just very, 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 very gently repeating that within yourself, you know, not even in your mind, but just to yourself. And it's something like, oh, mine is sort of similar to ohm, you know, it's about that long. And it's just this sweet little strange sound. Mm. And something to note about the mantra ohm, because ohm is a mantra uh, and it is, it's a monastic mantra and it is the sound that contains all other sounds. It is the mantra that contains all other mantras because ohm, it's not O-M, it's actually A-U-M, ohm, right? It's the alpha and the omega. It's the beginning and the end. You know, think of the Bible, you know, the alpha and the omega, I am the beginning, I am the end. And this is the ah and the ohm. So, uh, Om is just, it's not a mantra that if you live in society and you like to have sex with people and you like to live in your apartment and drive cars and stuff, it's not a mantra for you because you might find that you start like giving people all your clothes and handing people the deeds to your house and car because it might wake up some more reclusive nature inside Interesting. of you. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I think for people that haven't, I mean, I'm thinking most of the people that end up listening to my podcast are going to be pretty open and slightly on the woo woo bent, but to your average person, these concepts seem really fairy tale that these sounds and these traditions and all this stuff does something to you. And that's, that's the strange thing about spiritual pursuit and meditation is that it's, it's really hard to explain because you sort of have to use the left brain intellect to explain something that is totally nonlinear and unexplainable. It's like trying to explain the presence of love to someone that's never experienced that how how do you explain that and better yet how do you prove that you just know you walk in and the dog wags its tail and you just it's there well, what do you mean it's just an animal moving this little furry thing on its butt what's what's that that's love man <laughs> you know it's like yeah it's it's difficult to sort of explain until you've felt it and i think meditation and the use of a mantra and all of these ancient wisdoms that have been discovered and developed by humans since the beginning of time, I assume, 
they just have to be experienced, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, really, that's a big part of my job is to communicate the intangible in a way that gives people some sort of a window, right? That is my job to describe in words something that is not really describable, right? And that's, that's why I have a job. And I fancy myself pretty good at it. Um, now, that said, I could say all the pretty analogies. I could give you all the fancy words in the world, but until you have a visceral experience of that, it's not going to do you any good, right? Like one is software and the other is hardware, Right. So all the talks, all the knowledge, all the books, all the podcasts in the world might really improve your intellect. It might change the lens through which you perceive the world, but it will not usher you into a higher state of consciousness. In order to do that, you actually have to have a visceral experience of it. You have to actually give the body rest so that it can let go of the lifetime of accumulated stresses, which is the only thing keeping us all from being in enlightenment right now. Right? Like mind's ready. It's just the body that we have to purify from the lifetime of imbalances. But the beautiful thing is that I just make a lot of hypotheses, right? I, I give people an intellectual framework for it. And I say, here's my hypothesis. And now it's your job to collect the data. And I recommend that people, people collect the data on their own body. I mean, it's very much like biohacking, right? It's like, here's this hypothesis. Here's how it worked for me. Here's how it's worked for 95% of the people that I've taught. But you're not going to know it for sure. And you're certainly not going to believe it or trust it until you, until you collect the data on your own nervous system. Speaking of relieving stress from your body, you just said you were talking, actually, the whole time I've been kind of being brought back to this period in which I first learned this particular tradition. And this went on probably for the first year, almost to the point where I considered abandoning the practice. And that was, of course, explained to me by my teacher as stress release. So here I am. I learned to meditate, you know, 15 years into a pursuit of health and well-being and spirituality and, and prayer. And I mean, going, I've been to India and I mean, I've done all that stuff. Right. And then I start to meditate in this tradition and almost immediately started to realize that I turned into kind of an asshole and I found myself being quite irritable and even to the point where my girlfriend at the time mentioned on a couple occasions like dude I don't know about this meditation thing you seemed better when you just had your own little morning reading prayer whatever routine which you know is wasn't even kind of a patented system it was just made up as I went along and and that was actually true so I, I found that I was irritable when I would ask my teacher Jeff what was going on like why am I kind of getting worse it was explained as stress release and what was so weird about that to me is that I'm thinking, well, what the hell have I been doing for the past 15 years if that's not stress release? I'm doing yoga, I'm meditating, I'm going to every spiritual teacher in the world. I mean, I'm just doing anything and everything to just get better and feel better and bring, as you said, my best self to the world. So how can this meditation like bring up those stresses that are so deep and, and how come all of this other stuff hasn't brought them up yet? Yeah, it's a really good question. So Yours is a little twofold, right? Because you had all this software, you've been doing all this research, you had so you had so many operating systems, right? You had like the shiniest Mac snow leopard mountain lion, whatever the newest Mac operating system is. But the reality is that if you're not going in and really on a very cellular level, de-exciting the nervous system in a way that creates order, then we all have this lifetime of accumulated stress and imbalance in, in the body, in the hard drive. And so what this meditation does is that it's almost like it defrags the computer and it up-levels the actual computer, the actual hard drive, so that you can then run all the software that you've been accumulating. And because you had such elegant and advanced software, when you then started this practice and started running the machine, more elegantly, it was like a thump, like a big jump for you. And that's, that's my hypothesis. I mean, I wasn't there, but that's probably why the unstressing was perhaps a little bit more intense and a bit of longer term for you. Um, now the other thing to know is that I mean, the body is a perfect accountant, right? So all that work that you had done, I think did perhaps, you know, speed up your journey, um, in the long run. Um, you know, I like, I like to say that the body is a perfect accountant, you know, so every 
Taco Bell we've ever eaten and every all-nighter we've ever pulled and every breakup we've ever been through and every car accident we've ever seen and every dog that's barked into our face and all of that stuff is in our body. And in this style of meditation, the reason why we do it twice a day is because the once-a-day meditation is enough to handle all the new stresses. You know, there's a siren going by and my boss yells at me, but we do it twice a day because that second one starts to go back and it starts to clean house. It starts to get rid of the parents' divorce and the people that didn't come to the birthday party when we were seven and all that stuff that we were like, I'm fine. I'm fine. We'll deal with that right now. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fucking fine. And then we have a nervous breakdown or a midlife crisis, right? This, this style of meditation goes in, it starts unbaking that cake. And the thing is that usually the stress has a bit of the same flavor on the way out as it did on the way in. And so if you had some sad flavored stress rolling around, it might be a little sad on the way out. You've had some rage flavored stress. It might be a little ragey on the way out. And I'm so glad that you had Jeff there to help you through that. Cause you know, it's, it's really tempting to want to jump ship and be like, no, thanks. I don't want to feel this. You know, there's billion dollar industries built on top of making sure that we never feel a feeling. Oh, you're sad. Have some Prozac. Oh, you're anxious. Have some Clonopin. Do you know that 45% of adult women in the U S are on anti-anxiety or antidepressants? 45%. You know that one third of dogs in Los Angeles are on some sort of antidepressant? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, that's absurd to me. I was actually talking to a pharmacist by trade a couple nights ago at a party, and I, I had heard previously that Valium was the most prescribed drug in the world or in this country. And, but that was from an old recording by a speaker and uh so i asked her and she said that hydrocodone is actually uh the most prescribed medicine in this country which is you know a, like an opiate right so i thought about that and i thought wow there's a lot of people in a lot of pain you know it's that pain and there's no way to really get it out in a lasting way on that deep cellular level that's readily available so during that period, I wasn't feeling pain where I go, oh, I better get a Vicodin prescription. It was just, I'm just a little bit touchy, you know, just a little more on edge than I was used to feeling. I was pretty damn peaceful a lot of the time. And so now I imagine for someone who begins this practice and has never uncapped any of that and been to primal scream therapy and hit pillows and you know all the crazy stuff i've done since i was really a kid you know just trying to fix myself or having the authorities try to fix me you know for someone who's just like out of the box and pops into meditation i bet that does get a little bit crazy it can and that's why i'm i'm actually hopefully starting a program with the, with the bulletproof people to work with veterans and, and, you know, I, I'm not totally sure about this, but I think that the government just put a lot of money into teaching soldiers meditation before they go into combat. And this is some of the most exciting news I've heard because, I mean, yes, we absolutely need to be helping people with PTSD, but it would be, I think, such a cheaper, faster and more useful option to teach people meditation before they actually go into combat because then they're going to be able to handle the trauma so much more effectively it's not going to do as much damage it's not going to get lodged as deeply and i think the same like if we were teaching kids to meditate like this would be a much more enjoyable world that what's the dalai lama quote if we were to teach every eight-year-old meditation then we would end war within one generation wow and wow. I think you're right. People are in a lot of pain right now. And so we got, we have a big, we have a lot of work to do because the reality is that our bliss is it's right inside of us always, but most of us don't have a sustainable means by which to access it. So we look for it in anything we can think of money, cars, houses, sex, pills, you know, jobs, checking Instagram, Instagram, social media. <laughs> it's huge. That's like my, I, I was thinking about that today, actually, because I'm, I'm driving up to get some recording equipment for this session and fine tuning that hopefully it worked. And, uh, so I've got my phone, you know, that's the thing with the phone is I use the apps for so many things, right? So I've got my ways because I want to be efficient with traffic. And then because my phone's already there as my navigation, it's like, well, at the stoplight, I might as well just check for some text messages. And then, well, I already checked the text. I might as well check Instagram and see if I'm popular yet. And, you know, I realized I'm like, God, I'm, I really am addicted to that dopamine hit. It's such a way of escaping from any feeling of discomfort. So you might ask me on the way to the guitar center, Luke, are you, are you masking pain right now? Are you in any pain? And consciously, no, I'm not. 
But there's still something there that's old or new or present that I'm trying to get away from. Or you're moving towards, you know, it's either masking or it's like the I'll be happy when syndrome. I'll be happy when I get a thousand more followers. I'll be happy when a hundred people like this photo. I'll be happy when I get this new message. And as you're saying, you get a little dopamine hit. So it very, in a very real way becomes an addiction. You know, I think an addiction is anytime you're looking at something externally for your fulfillment, right? When, when the reality is the only place that we can find it is inside of ourselves. And that's what I love about meditation is that in a very real way, it gives you access to that bliss and fulfillment in the only place that it resides, which is inside of you. You know, every spiritual text has been saying this since the beginning of time, what you seek is in you. And that's fine to understand that as an intellectual concept, but it's much more powerful to be able to experience that viscerally every day, twice a day. And then, and then you start to become, instead of need going around looking for fulfillment, you actually start to become fulfillment looking for need. You start to look for opportunities to contribute versus opportunities to fill yourself up. And, and, and I hear you like, I, (laughs) I definitely have to catch myself with the social media because it can be both, right? You can be delivering fulfillment and posting amazing messages and sharing your teachings via it. And it can be a slippery slope into, oh my gosh, do you love me? Oh my gosh, does everyone approve of me? Yeah, (laughs) totally. Am I famous yet? Yeah. How popular am I? It's like, you know, it's like in high school, um, Instagram and social media that that quantify and count your popularity hits is sort of like how fast you get picked for the team, you know, in PE, which I was always last, you know, so maybe it's like a, a deep seated getting picked last. It's like, I'm going to show them I'm going to have the most Instagram followers, you know, totally. it is a slippery slope. But as you said, that's an interesting way to look at it. And I was actually talking to my dad yesterday on the phone about this, about because he was saying, oh, everything's so damn hard now, you know. I'm, he was trying to order something online, and he called me. They don't have a damn 800 number. I was like, Dad, businesses don't want to talk to you anymore. It's like, you just get on the computer. He's like, I don't want to get on the computer, you know. And so he's talking about, you know, people used to talk face-to-face, and we had this intimacy and this closeness, and we could relate to one another and, um, you know, and read physical communication cues and all of that. And he was missing that. And I said, yeah, well, that's true, but look at the flip side. I mean, I know literally thousands of people in my life that I never would have ever probably had the opportunity to meet, such as yourself, if it weren't for this ability for us to contact each other. So it's like not something that I would want to totally deny and try and you know eradicate from my life, but at the same time, one does have to be very watchful in order to not let it take you over and become something that's compulsive and destructive. Yeah, I think it's very much like food. You know, you can't just get food. If you are a food addict of sorts, if you have food issues, then you can't just eradicate food from your life. And same at this point, you can't eradicate your phone and your apps and social media from your life. Um, so it's, it's a matter of cultivating the level of consciousness that allows you to see that as a vessel and not as an addiction. Yeah. And I want to go back to what you said that was even more important, I think, and that is as this spiritual transformation begins to take place and manifest, what happens is rather than me seeing the world as a place that I'm threatened by or a place that I need to get something out of and I'm always in, what did you say last night is acquisitor? What were you talking about? I call about? it the, uh, the acquisitive approach acquisitive to fulfillment appro- yeah. or the I'll be happy when syndrome. Right. So going through life, getting, 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 there's just an inherent level of selfishness in all of us, right? I mean, myself included. I mean, a lot of the things I find myself motivated to do inherently have a selfish motive. I'm aware of that. It's something that I track, but I also don't fault myself because that's just how I'm wired. It's uh, it's survival, you know? Well, the the difference here is that it's not that the desires are bad, right? Like if you look at the, the fun, my very limited understanding of the foundation of Buddhism is that life is suffering, right? And if you can move beyond your attachment, then you move beyond suffering, right? But this is a very monastic way to look at life. I'm just not going to be attached to anything. I'm just going to take my satchel and go on the road, right? But, but for the householder practice, for the Vedic practice, it's like, okay, well, we wake up, we meditate, we flood our brains and bodies with dopamine and serotonin. We access this fulfillment internally. I come out of the meditation and now I'm not under the illusion that this one job can make me or break me. I'm not under the illusion that this, you know, next thousand Instagram followers can make me or break me, but I still want it. 
I still want to sleep with that guy. I still want to make a million dollars. So why? Why does that desire exist? And the Vedic viewpoint in that is that those desires are nature's GPS. Those desires are nature cueing you of where nature is using you to deliver your fulfillment, not the other way around. Yeah, that's so true how once the change starts to take place, you stop seeing the world and the people in it as something that you need to go get outside for fulfillment. I've found through meditation, through everything that I've experimented with, that you naturally start to seek opportunities in which to contribute. And then comes the awareness that through that contribution, you actually do receive more than you ever could have found or had out trying to force it to make it happen. It's like the the yin of life, the art of allowing, right? It's like putting yourself there, being of service, and all of these things that sound really nice, but I think a lot of people don't think actually work to get you toward fulfillment. <laughs> Once you start to have that experience, because you're de-stressing, because you're having contact with something other than just you and your small self and your ego and that that um, need to get and to take, that it starts to unfold and it just becomes part of who you are. And you know that even while you're contributing and being of service to the world and giving, that you're receiving the maximum amount of benefit that's even possible, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you give for the sake of giving. You create for the sake of creating. Yeah. The reward becomes the doing of the thing itself. Right. And, And then, of course, along the way, there's the pitfall and the quicksand of congratulating yourself for being such a spiritual oh, person, such a good person. And, and showing the right because pride is like sneaky that ego sneaky it will it will infiltrate one's you know spiritual pursuits and start taking credit or wanting the world to see do you see how see how generous i am see how much of service i am see what i do with charity world look at me you know which is another sort of trap along the way on the way, I think, to having that real experience where you just know in your heart of hearts that that's the purpose of your life. I would like to ask you uh, about one other thing. Off the topic of meditation, now that we're just talking about spiritual fulfillment and having a meaningful life, what other things have you found useful in terms of um, reading spiritual books? Um, Not the question I'm going to ask you (laughs) at the end that I warned you about, but Um, prayer or yoga or mindfulness or any of the other things what have you incorporated into your life that's been useful in addition or an adjunct to meditation well i'll tell you what i did before meditation because once i found this practice i really fell deep down the rabbit hole like i just went as far as i could go in into the vedas and studying them and just basically soaking up everything i could and that to me has been both software and hardware it's been an operating system and giving me a new machine Um, but before i found meditation i was working with this man in new york city his name is thomas jones and Like for all practical purposes, he's a therapist, but he's much, much more than that. He's one of the most emotionally intelligent human beings I've ever met. And he really helped me a lot in my early 20s. He he created something called the paradox process. And I would liken it to almost like speed therapy or like speed meditation. Whereas I think meditation gives you this general wash of bliss and fulfillment and bliss chemistry in your brain. His, this thing of paradox process, you can go in with a very specific issue with a very specific thing that you are looking for transformation around. And he helps to clear the emotional charge around that particular thing. It's almost like a laser focused meditation on one particular issue. And he really helped me in my early twenties and I had lost my father and I was in and out of what I would consider are pretty abusive relationships. And he really, he taught me how to say no and he taught me how to be in healthy relationships. And I'm very, very grateful for him and and that practice. And, and it's really, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. I'm not a practitioner of it, but I, I, you know, I used to use it personally all the time. And basically it would be like giving yourself permission to feel exactly what you're feeling and acknowledging it, almost giving voice to it. And then he has this process where he'll go through and kind of ask you a bunch of questions because it's much easier for the brain to digest a question than it is a statement. And, and then you have almost like an input that you use. It sounds crazy, but you're treating the brain very much like a computer. And I found it really helpful 
helpful. And I even saw him for about a year, similar to you, for about a year after I started meditating. And then there just came a day where I was like, huh, I don't know what anyone is going to tell me about me that I'm not already intuiting, that nature isn't already giving me the cues about. And so either he did a great job or meditation sort of made that practice irrelevant for me on my journey, but that was really helpful. So it was called Paradox Process. And his name is Thomas Jones, and, and he was really instrumental in my I'd say my early days of being on this path. So you're like a diehard meditator. (laughs) I mean, it really was dramatic for me. I mean, it, I went, I used to consider myself a seeker. I don't consider myself a seeker anymore. I feel like I found it. You're a founder. I'm a founder. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. And I I guess inherent to that is just a certain degree of understanding. For me, the purpose of all of that meditation and everything I'm doing is to become more connected to who and what I really am and to to remove the blocks that are preventing me from having an experience of God or whatever you want to call that creator. And so, you know, all of those roads are essentially reading, leading to the same place, right? Is that there is something very real and intelligence and a love and a power that's present here for those of us that care to find it by removing the things that are in the way. And so it sounds like the process that you've um, been able to do that through his meditation. Mm-hmm. And also I had done so many other things before I found meditation. I mean, similar to yourself, I had all this software. My father passed away from cancer when I was 24. And so I took off of work and I came home and I became sort of like a makeshift nutritionist for him. And so I learned around, I, I was around 24. I learned a lot about the body and how it deals with the disease and how you have to feed the body and not the disease. And so I had, I've been doing all of that stuff. You know, I've been doing this software. I had read all the books. I had done all the, I've been dancing and singing and acting since I was eight years old, which in my opinion is its own kind of spiritual practice. When you're using your body as an instrument every day, you are keenly aware of what kind of blockages are going on. You're keenly aware of how wide is your emotional vessel. You can tell when you have emotional blocks in your voice. And I have been doing that work since I was eight. So I had about as much software as you can have, aside from being like you know, a PhD in religion or something. Um, but, it, but then when I found the meditation practice, it allowed me to install all of that software. It allowed me to actually utilize those tools that I had been gathering. Well put. I love it. That's a great summary of that. Okay. So we're reaching the end of the show here. And I'd like to ask you my favorite question in the world, which is really one question with three answers. One of which you somewhat answered when you referenced your, uh, teacher in New York that you had done some work with. But I'd like to ask you, what are your top three recommendations for books, teachings, teachers, gurus, programs, courses, anything that you feel helped you to make you who you are today? Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful question. And I feel a huge amount of gratitude to one of my teachers named Tom Knowles. Um, He's been teaching for about 43 years. I consider him a true master. I think he's one of the best orators on the subject of consciousness living today. And I did a whole series of courses through him called Exploring the Veda. So I teach Vedic meditation, but Exploring the Veda is a series of lectures uh, basically on the Vedic worldview. And it was the first one is, is actually, it sounds so boring. It's 11 hours of recorded lecture, which sounds like torture to most people, but my job was on the floor. My mind was being blown. And it's one of the most exciting, enriching bodies of knowledge that I've ever come into contact with. And it, it's the kind of software that actually uplevels the hardware. You know, it's the kind of information that can actually <laughs> change the way you see the world so dramatically that you don't ingest stress the same way anymore. And that was really transformative. And I continue to dive deeper into that. Sort of as a, as a side note to that, I'm very proud of myself. I'm 41% of the way through the Mahabharata, which is basically like the Vedic version of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. It's one of the, it's, I think it's the longest book in the land. And it's this epic story, but it's definitely one of the most sacred texts in the Vedic tradition. So that's what I'm on right now. But I would say Tom Knowles. Um, 
to go for something completely different. I have a giant amount of respect for a woman named Marie Forleo, which when you said that um, I'm kind of like the Marie Forleo of meditation, it was the best compliment you ever could have given. Oh, I'm so glad. I I had no idea, but that's, you remind me of her and the fact that you're business savvy, but also very conscious as as she is. Mm, Well, thank you for that. Because she's been, I've only met her a few times, but I consider her a mentor just from doing her training. So I actually did her online training called B-School. And it's really the only only business training I have. You know, I have a BFA in musical theater. And the fact that Ziva is about to be, you know, like multi-city, many teachers, first online meditation training in the world. Like, I'm really proud of all of that. And and I know that it's not has nothing to do with me, but I wouldn't have had the tools to execute on that if it weren't for Marie Forleo and B-School. So I'm very I grateful. did B-School too. Yay! Yeah, yeah. So good. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so delicious. And then I would say the third... I've become, I've been studying the art and science of Ayurveda for the past, I don't know, four or five years. So Ayurveda is really the sister science to Vedic meditation. Veda means knowledge, Ayur means longevity. So you could call the Ayurvedic people like the original biohackers. And it's really just understanding the laws of nature and how they interact with your body so that you can use nature to help you get to where you want to go versus fighting nature and trying to control everything in the body. And I like it because, again, it's not a doctrine, it's not a dogma, it's not a set of rules, but it's just you getting to a state of mastery so that you can understand the way that your body's interacting with your food, with the seasons, with the climate change. And so my teacher's there, um, a guy named Damien and and a woman named Katie, and they have a company called Veda Holistic Health. And I've been working with them for a long time, and they're hilarious. Um, And then because of the stuff that I've learned through them, we're actually launching uh, something called Ziva Eats, which is basically Ayurveda 101. And it's really for meditators and non-meditators, but just to understand the basic principles of what should I be eating? When should I be eating? At what temperature? What time? What's my body type? You know, all the, all the stuff that can seem sort of basic, but it is the fundamentals to having a mastery of your own physical body. What a brilliant idea. I love that. Marie Forleo did get in your head, I think. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Thank you for those answers. And uh, we'll definitely put all of those in the show notes. And speaking of show notes, in closing, let us know how exactly we can find you online, social media, etc. Yeah, so it's just zivameditation.com. That's the hub there. We have probably a few hundred videos on our video blog there. And you can also link through zivameditation.com. You can get to Ziva Mind, which is the online training. So so I, I would recommend if people have access to a teacher in person, even if they think I'm a ding dong head and they want to learn Vedic meditation, I say, yes, do it. The practice is so good. Um, but if you don't have access to a teacher face to face, then I would recommend Ziva Mind. It's, it's an eight day training. Each day's video training builds upon the previous day's training. So it's a matriculation and you become self-sufficient. You'll have a meditation practice to take with you on the end of it. And there are fun guided visualizations for like insomnia or traveling or stress release. And once you go through it, you have access to the program for life. And you can find all that at zivameditation.com. And then we're all over social media, just at Ziva Meditation. We're on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all the you things. You actually managed to get your real tags. You know, it sucks sometimes when you when you try to get, like, my name, I think, on Twitter was taken. I was like, oh, man, you know, I know. so. I think about the kids, like, the next generation. Like, what are their email addresses going to be? What are their URL? Like, it's going to be a whole no new land. going to be able to get a URL, yeah. I know. So um, that's cool. So now it's very easy to find you. And I just want to personally thank you for your work and your teaching and your friendship and for coming to the show today and i can't wait to see more of you yeah it's a real honor thank you for having me well that was certainly an enlightening conversation about meditation with emily fletcher i really enjoyed having her in the studio today and i encourage you to go check out ziva meditation because whether you can get to her in person which is amazing i've done it or you take her online course I think that there's some real benefit there, and it's a great way to get acquainted to meditation in a way that's very accessible. I've I've been working on meditation for about almost 20 years now myself, and when I found Vedic meditation, it was just like, bing, the lights went on. So I'm really happy to be able to share this resource with you because I know a lot of people struggle with that. They want to learn meditation, they try some sort of discipline that doesn't work for them, and they give up. But I think there's a very good chance that this householder's method, as they call Vedic meditation, could very well work for you. So I hope you take advantage of that. 
And speaking of taking advantage, I would love for you to take advantage of my free episode upgrade. This is the download that I talked about earlier in the show. You might have fast-forwarded through that because that's what I do sometimes in, in promos on podcasts. Don't do it on my show, though. It's all awesome stuff. No, the episode upgrade is an amazing four-page, beautiful PDF that I've put together with all of the active links and resources that Emily and I spoke of during the interview. So you don't have to try to remember anything. You can know most of the time on my show, I'm going to feature this upgrade. All you have to do is text or put it in your browser and you can immediately download it. It's a really awesome resource for you and something you can share with your friends very easily. So here's how you get it. Ready? Drum roll. Wait, let me drum roll on my mic. Can we hear that? That's a drum roll. Okay. All you have to do is text the word lifestylist5 to the number 44222. So text lifestylist5 to the phone number 44222. If you want to get it on your browser, just go to lukestory.com forward slash lifestylist5 and it is all yours, baby. It's for fun and for free and I really know you're going to enjoy it. Please don't forget to subscribe to this show so you never miss an episode. It's really important that I grow the audience and share this message with as many people as possible. And it would be wonderful if you can go into iTunes and leave a rating and a review. I know it's a pain in the ass to do that because it takes two minutes, but it really means a lot to me and it's a great way to support the show. Okay? So thank you for that. And if you know someone who would dig this information, dig this content, by all means, forward it to them and share with your friends and brethren the thing called the Lifestylist Podcast, okay? I'd like to remind you to visit livinglibations.com and enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout to save 10% off your order. One of my top recommendations from Living Libations would be the C. Buckthorn Face Serum. This stuff is amazing. I use it every day. That's why I'm 45 and look like I'm 19. No, I'm just kidding, but it, it totally helps, okay? It's amazing stuff. And don't forget to check out their complete line of self-dentistry products. They have an insane suite of all these different products that you can use on your teeth and gums, and it's amazing. So go to livinglibations.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST, and save yourself a cool 10% don't forget to check in tomorrow for another amazing show on episode six with Nadine Artemis. Nadine and I talk about the great sunshine swindle, which is the huge, huge scam perpetuated on mankind, um, giving us the belief system that the sun is something bad that you have to stay away from, when in fact, it's probably the most life-supporting thing in our universe. So don't miss that episode or any to follow. I look forward to hearing from you and having you hear from me then. Bye.